Uh, so I'm going to be, uh, we're going to be wrapping up 1 Corinthians today, finishing it up, and I'm so excited about that. This has been such a great uh, book, and the Lord's timing is perfect because I am leaving for a couple weeks. Michelle and I are going to head off to Italy, so we're going to be gone for a couple weeks, and I am so excited about the speakers that we're going to have over the next three weeks. And uh, so we're going to have Darren, we're going to have John Boletto, we're going to have Justin. And I am just so thankful that we have these men in our church who are going to be able to teach. And uh, I'm, Michelle and I are looking, looking forward. We're thankful for online because we're going to try to tune in from Italy. So that's going to be fun. As we think about uh, just wrapping up 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to be looking today at steps to a powerful Christian life. One of the things that is important, like people's last words are important. And for the Apostle Paul, as he wraps up 1 Corinthians, he just... He hits them with like eight commands in, in that section, and we're going to be looking at those, and they're just like these rapid-fire commands, and then he, he gives some examples and an encouragement from those examples, and so it's just really good. And actually, when you think about this passage, if the Corinthians had put this into practice, they would not have had any of the problems that he had to address throughout this book. And so this is a great thing, a great summary for us to just look at what Apostle Paul said and how he wrapped things up. You know, I was thinking about how great it is to be a Christian. And uh, the message often about being a Christian is if you come to Christ, all your problems will go away, everything will be good, you'll always have peace. And it's interesting because you don't read the Bible and see that that is actually how things work out. Now, I think about my life, and my life is so much better since I became a Christian. I did all these foolish things to damage and harm myself, and coming to Christ, in spite of any persecution or any difficulty that I have ever faced as a Christian, my life is so much better knowing and following Jesus. Reminds me of what Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He said, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul when he speaks to the Corinthians. Um, he is speaking from a powerful life, a person who views life rightly. And that didn't mean his life was easy. Um, the Apostle Paul had physical challenges. He had, he had a physical disability, he couldn't see. He had phys spiritual struggles, persecution, strife, difficulty. But he was driven by a desire to please the Lord. And one of the things that I think about Paul is his message is powerful because of who he was, because of the life that he lived. But what made his, me his message so powerful is that his words in 1 Corinthians are the very words of God. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Paul wrote, but more importantly, God wrote. I want to just uh, read a passage um, about this, and uh, it is this. It is Second Peter one nineteen, and it says, "We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart." Knowing this, first of all, this is what God is saying. This is what God through Peter is saying about the Bible. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? No person writing Scripture produced what they were writing. God produced it through them. That is an amazing thing, and that's an important thing we're going to start with because Paul, at the end of this book, is going to say something shocking He's going to say something that if any pastor ever said that from the pulpit, everybody would say, that's a terrible person. We should not listen to that. Paul says something shocking. and It's important for us to understand that everything that Paul writes is actually from God. So let's dig into this. And so we're going to see these, these uh, commands 
that Paul has for us. And here's the first one. And uh, we don't want to have an eight-point sermon. We're going to have a five-point sermon. And so I'm going to put five points in the first point. How's that? Um, so here's where our five points are going to come from is 1 Corinthians 16, 3, uh, 16, 13. And it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. If I was to summarize that, I would say that, that we are commanded to combine spiritual strength with love. And so let's look at these five elements that, that it takes for us to combine spiritual strength with love. He opens up and he just says, be watchful. Part of the Christian life is that we are watchful, that we're aware, that we are on guard, that we are not asleep, that we are paying attention, that we are alert. Um, when I think about this word and the way that it's used in Scripture, in the Old Testament, it's used of people posted on guard posts, people on guard duty. And when you think about your life, have you ever seen somebody that, that as they live their life, they do foolish, sinful things? They're, they're kind of prey for things to go wrong. They're not careful about their friends. They're not careful about what they do. They make choices that are spiritually destructive. And, and often... That type of spiritual destruction comes from a life of bad habits, bad Christian ha or bad life habits, not knowing and obeying what God says. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, and when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, they had a lot of bad habits. And Paul says you need to actually be watchful and careful about how you live your life. And um, when I looked at this word and the way it was used in the New Testament, you know, most often it's talking about being watchful and praying. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, couldn't you watch with me? And that's this word. It's to be alert. And alertness is always combined with prayer. When we're careful, when we're, when we're on guard, we pray. We ask God for help. We pray for others. We pray for ourselves. And that's something that we need to do. Um, Colossians says it this way. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So prayer is a, par a powerful part of being watchful and be dil being diligent, being on duty. So that's the first thing is we need to recognize that danger is out there. Uh, we don't just go through life carelessly. We go through life carefully. The second thing that he says here is be watchful. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Now, stand, standing firm in the faith is an inner strength that comes when you trust God. I was thinking about uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, um, where it just says this. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. One who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Have you thought about the strength that comes when you know who Jesus is and when you trust Him? When you say, no matter what, I'm going to learn what God says and I'm going to practice that in my life, that brings a steadfast strong life. It says this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then brothers, stand firm, hold on to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul, when he's talking about standing firm, he's saying stand firm in the tradition, stand firm in God's word, stand firm in these things you've learned. And when Paul uses the word traditions here, it's not like church tradition, it's not practices. When he says traditions, he's talking about God's word, which is clear as you read this verse. So we need to be people that know what God says and live in light of that, and we trust God. The third element, and this is interesting, it says here, act like men. How does that strike you? Um, I have a shirt that says act like men on it. And uh, I, I was talking to somebody who was saying I could never wear that to, to work, I'd get fired. Um, so, so this whole thing of act like men, you want to know it's interesting, God says act like men. Now that is a verb, but you know what that verb is? It's just the noun man 
changed into a verb. And so God has an intention for people to, to act like men. Now, this is interesting because he's actually talking to the whole church. He's not just saying men act like men. He's saying everybody, everybody in the Corinthian church act like men. Now, what do you think he means by that? What is, if somebody said to you, act like a man, what, what do you think that that would be? Like, what meaning do you think that would carry? So, um, just in looking at, for this word, it's only used once in the New Testament right here. But when you search through the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually appears many times. And uh, it's always in the combination of be strong and courageous. This is talking about courage. Have any of you ever thought about what courage is? You know, courage is... Um, bringing up inner strength that is strengthening yourself in the face of fear to do what you should do. Often people think of courage as a person who's just brave and who has no fear. But actually, courage is something that happens when you're afraid. When you look at the examples of the Old Testament, when, when these commands are given, it's always given at really scary times. Like when Israel was getting ready to go into the promised land and they had to conquer the Canaanites. Um, when, when that was happening, that is when God said, um, be strong and courageous. It's always at moments when people would be overcome with, overcome with fear that they would be told to be courageous. I found a few quotes on being courageous, and it just says, courage is not the absence of fear, only fools have no fear. So it's not just being foolhardy, it's not not being afraid. Courage, um, I like this from John Wayne, uh, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Um, and then uh, another good quote is from uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. I want you to think about the fears that you face in life. Um, do you ever fear sharing the gospel? In our last life group, we were talking about sharing the gospel and how that can be a scary thing. Uh, what are the things in your life, spiritually speaking, that bring fear? that you feel like, man, I know I should do something, I know I should say something, but you're feeling this internal anxiety and stress and you're afraid. And so often we shrink away from doing the things that we know God has called us to do because we're afraid. Well, it is precisely when you're afraid that you need to summon the strength to do what God tells you to do. One of the things that when you look at all those passages in the Old Testament that say be strong and courageous, you know what they always say, the reason? Be strong and courageous because God is with you. See, we're afraid, but we have a perspective on life that is different, and we can say, I may be afraid, but I don't need to be afraid because I know that there is a God who loves me, who is all-powerful, who's in control of everything. And I can do what he tells me to do, even if I'm afraid. And so that is courageous. We need to be courageous. That is acting like a man. Now, when you think about that, if that's acting like a man, and that's a quality that we all need to have, um, I would say especially if it says act like a man, this is especially a quality that should be lived out in men. So if you're a man... Are you courageous? And when you, if you're raising men, like if, if, if you have young men in your home, what do you do to teach kids to be courageous? Because if God is saying, act like a man, and that's courage, then that means that that should be a quality that every person has. And I think that if we, we should be intentional, we should be purposeful in developing that quality in young men, young boys. And how do you develop courage. I think you develop courage by facing fear. And instead of sheltering, instead of protecting, I think we need to encourage young men, hey, what are the things that God tells you to do? How is it that you're supposed to be living? And when they're afraid, we need to encourage them, talk them through that, and help them do the things that they're afraid of. I'm not talking about 
jumping bicycles or, you know, just different types of things, although that could be an opportunity to teach people courage. But I think for the most part, it's teaching people to do the hard things that God has called them to do. And so for those of us who have sons, that is an incredibly important thing for us to be thoughtful and intentional about so that somebody could look at your kid grown up or if, if you're a man, that somebody could look at you and, and they could look at this passage and they could say, act like a man and they could just think about the men in their life and say, you know what? That's a person who would share the gospel. That is a person who would stand up for somebody who is being wronged. That is a person that does not sh shrink back in fear when it comes to their Christian testimony. That's a person who in the face of anything will always do what God calls them to do. That's what men are supposed to be like. And the Apostle Paul says, look at men. Now everybody, be courageous like a man. Um, the, uh, the next one, the fourth one, um, he says, be strong. Now, what's interesting about that word is that is to be strengthened, uh, being strengthened by God. That's passive. That's something that happens to you. And so strong, strength is really something that we recognize is not within us. Strength is something that comes from God in our lives. Um, Ephesians 3.16, um, in verse 13, uh, Paul has just said, don't lose heart. So again, he's talking to them about a fearful situation. He says, don't lose heart, don't give up, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. That's something as Christians that we need to recognize is that whether or not you feel strong, you have the resources to be strong through the Holy Spirit in your life. And then this last one, a great overarching statement that actually covers every one of them, and that is this, do everything in love. Do everything in love. So it doesn't matter what you're doing and, and strength and your courage and all those things, everything we do should be colored by love. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 has described what love is. It's patient, it's kind, it is not jealous, it's not easily angered, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love, when we think about love, it is living with the best interests of somebody else in mind. It's being soft-hearted. It doesn't necessarily mean being soft, but it's being soft-hearted. You know, it's interesting when, um, when the Bible talks about God's love for us, it says that the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And so when you think about that in your relationships and, and even as a parent, if you love your kids, you will do things that are difficult, that are challenging. You will discipline. Uh, people discipline their children when they love them. Uh, when there are kids that don't receive discipline, Hebrews 12 talks about this. When kids don't receive discipline, it's because they're not loved. Um, I remember going out to eat with a group of people, and one person said, yeah, whatever my kids want, I give them because of how much I love them. I never tell my kids no. Um, if you love somebody <laughs> and you have kids, if you love your kids, you'll say no. Whoever doesn't say no, whoever doesn't discipline their kids doesn't love them. And so, it's, so love is not a, just a warm feeling, but I will say this, even discipline comes out of a gentle, caring love for a person. You know, there's uh, two kinds of people in prison. Uh, the people in prison are who have been abused, uh, people who grow up in violence and a lack of love and abuse. Uh, that's a group of people that you will find in prison. Uh, you will also find people in prison who receive no discipline in their life. Um, so prison is filled with people who weren't loved. Um, what kids need, what we all need, is love, which is not always pleasant, but everything we do should be clothed in love. Now, it's interesting, uh, sometimes, um, have you ever felt like everything that you do is clothed in irritation? So we can do a lot of things, we can work hard on a lot of things, and often we can be motivated by irritation. Hey, that happens to me sometimes. Um, but one of the things I like to remind myself 
is that one of the spiritual gifts, irritation is not a spiritual gift, <laughs> and irritation is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. So um, it's important for us <laughs> to do everything in love. Okay, so that's the first five. In two verses, Paul just like nails them with these commands, and he just says, do these things. Here's a second thing that is important for us to consider, is that we need to live with the right kind of submission. You know, you think about uh, God's, the important role that authority has, the important part of being a submissive person. This is one of the most important lessons that anybody learns is to be in submission to authority. Uh, it's one of the most important things we teach our kids, how to think about teachers, how to think about police officers, how to think about anybody in a position of authority. And I think this is interesting what the Apostle Paul says here. First Corinthians 16, 15, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acha, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So he just points out this family. And so the rest of these, we're going to see in a context of Paul pointing out a situation and then giving a command. So he's just pointing out this family that got saved, the first converts, and how they lived their life for the well-being to build up the body of Christ. You know, that's one of the things that um, it just says that they were devote, they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. You know, there's a lot of people who misunderstand the purpose of the church. And, uh, they, and when they think about the church, they, they view the purpose of the church as evangelism. So we're just going to evangelize, bring all your non-saved friends to church, and we're going to evangelize here. We're, when we think about the church, we're not going to think about what believers need. We're going to think about if non-Christians came into our service, how could we orient this so that they would want to be here? And uh, we'll come back to, I think, a key element that our church needs to be like that would make unbelievers want to come. But did you know that the purpose of the church is not unbelievers? The purpose of the church is to build up believers. It's one of the things I think about in our culture. We have so many Christians that lack courage, and they don't speak up, and they're not willing to be bold with their faith. They're not willing to stand for Christ. They, they kind of have this scared way that they operate, and, and they're secret service Christians. And so they just try to be nice. And, and their idea of evangelism is, I'm going to leave a big tip. And so they just, they just want to be nice to everybody, but they're not bold in their faith. And I think about, you know, where does that come from? Where does that kind of an attitude come from? And then I think about the fact that you have a church where often pastors and leaders in churches try so hard not to say anything that would offend an unbeliever. They would never preach on hell, would never preach on sin, because if an unbeliever showed up, that would turn them off. And we don't want to turn people off. We want to welcome them. And I thought about the fact, like one time I preached a sermon on abortion and somebody said to me afterwards, man, you are really brave. Uh, you really just laid that out there. I just thought to myself, if preaching on, a, on abortion in this room is brave, then there's something really wrong with how we're viewing life. If preaching what God says, the truth of God's Word, faithfully, without compromise, if that's bold in church where we all agree, right? We all agree that God's Word is authoritative. We all agree that we want to worship God. This should be the easiest place in the world to say the things that God has said. And uh, often, I think the reason that Christians struggle being faithful is because actually Sometimes people leading the church struggle with being faithful. And I think often that's because we misunderstand the value of building up the body of Christ. And uh, so this whole idea, so Paul holds up these people that are building up the body of Christ. They've devoted themselves to the saints. And then he says, be in submission to such people. Be subject to such as these, and listen to this, and to every fellow worker and laborer. So Paul says, be in submission. You know what submission is? Submission is to line up under, 
Paul's just saying, take a look at these people who are faithful, who are devoted, and submit to them. Now, I just uh, I looked at this word in the New Testament again. I did a lot of looking at words this week. And, um, you know, uh, one of the, the, the most often way this word is used is just talking about submission to God, how God will bring, it's used in the passive, God will bring the entire world under submission to Him, how uh, we are to be in submission to Jesus. So 11 times that's how it's used. Six times it's talking about a wife's attitude toward her husband, to be in submission, to follow the leadership of her husband. Four times it's used to talk about the attitude that we need to have toward the government. Um, twice it's, it's used to talk about submitting to one another, to employers. It's also used to talk about being in submission to spiritual leaders, elders. And one time it's used of Jesus' attitude toward his parents, that he was in submission to them. So submitting is to um, put somebody else's, um, to follow somebody else's leadership, to put their desires above your own desires. And uh, we are to do that. You know, it's interesting in Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about this. And I think when we think about authority, have you ever thought about the dangers and difficulties of submission? Um, have you ever seen um, a marriage where there's somebody's married to a tyrant, maybe an abusive person that's unkind. And, and it's like, how do you submit to that? What about authorities that we struggle with in the government? And you just go, man, this is an ungodly government. How can I be in submission to that? Have you ever seen people who go to church, or have you ever heard stories about people who go to church and they submit to leaders who end up being cultic? And, and they control people. And, and, and we've all heard of uh, Jim Jones. He, he gets this group, group of people, and as they follow him, he follows them to drink poison. And so often people look at this whole, at, this whole idea of submission, and they just go, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, God calls me to do that, but I don't want to do that. And, and we, it's this dilemma of how do you submit? And I would just say this, that submission in every situation, is first and foremost submission to God, never to a person. Um, we submit in marriage, if you're a wife, you submit to your husband, it's actually submission to God. And that is expressed appropriately in your relationship with your spouse, where you just say, this, is, this, this person, whether they're perfect or not, is a person that God tells me that I need to follow the leadership of. When we have a government, we submit to Christ, and in that, we submit to the government. And so just in all of these things, we submit first to Christ and actually ultimately to Christ in every submission relationship. You know, I think about this, Romans 13, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Have you thought about that? When God gives you an authority and you fail to follow and submit to that authority that God takes that personally? So how do, you, how do you sort this out as we look through what God's Word says? This is one of the things that I found interesting in our just last week, last message. One of the things for us to consider is that every authority comes from God. I think about that in marriage. Uh, when you're married, that's not an accident. Um, sometimes people are in terrible marriages, and, and the thought of submitting to the person they're married to is a nightmare. And the reason it's a nightmare is because they disregarded everything that God said about marriage. Um, God said if you're a believer and you're going to get married, you are only to marry other believers. So when you're thinking about who to marry, you think about, is this person a faithful Christian? Do they have a track record of honoring and obeying God in their life? Do they function and serve in the church? And if they, do, if they don't, you should never consider marrying that person. And often what people do is they disobey God, they marry somebody that God has instructed them not to marry, and then they say, oh, my life is terrible. 
How can I submit to this person? And so often that happens. Sometimes uh, there are other things. I mean, even believers can struggle in that. Um, Sometimes God saves people in marriage. Two unbelievers get married. And then a believing wife, a new believer, finds herself married to an unbeliever. She used to once be an unbeliever. How do you function in that? And the thing about all those things is we trust God's goodness and God's sovereignty in all of those situations. So when it comes to the government, sometimes we end up with a government that we wouldn't have picked. Have you ever done your duty? You've gone out and you've voted, and at the end of the night, who you voted for is not the president or who's not in charge. I remember uh, years and years ago, before Michelle and I had kids, we were watching this election, and I just remember thinking to myself, there is no chance that this other candidate is going to win. There's no chance that our country is dumb enough to elect that person. And so the, the, all the results were not in, and, and I went to bed feeling confident that the election was going to turn out how I thought it should. And when I woke up in the morning, I was shocked and in disbelief because it didn't go the way I thought it would go. And then I just thought to myself, you know, this is not an accident. God is in control of how this turned out, and I need to have the attitude that God calls me to have toward leaders, to pray for them, to be in submission to the government that God has given me, to have a good attitude. And uh, that's something that comes from the fact that we know that God is in charge. Um, I think about Daniel 1.9. Daniel was taken as a slave into Babylon, and they, they tell him, you need to eat food that is not okay for Jewish boys to eat. And Daniel's response uh, was to pray, and then he just said, hey, um, can you allow us to eat different food? And the person that was overseeing him is thinking, man, if I don't feed you what um, the king told me to feed you, and you stand up in front of everybody, and you look weak, and the others look strong, I could get killed for not feeding you what the king told me to feed you. But the Bible says this, it says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And we know the story. He let them eat what Jews were supposed to eat, and they were stronger and more healthy. But that was God working through a sinful authority. Um, I think about this verse as a great verse. Proverbs, they're all good verses, but this is a good one in this regard. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You ever thought about that? When you make requests, when you pray, um, even leaders, God is in control of their heart. God can change and adjust their desires. There are, there are times that I've been, in, I've been in submission to somebody who's made decisions I didn't like and I prayed about it, and then I just think to myself, you know what? This is a circumstance that God is allowing me to be in um, because he could make this leader make a different decision than they made. And so my submission in those situations is related and actually a direct consequence of my personal submission to God. Now, I do want to say this. Um, In submission, you do not give up your personhood you don't give away your personal decisions to other people. Um, we submit to Christ, and we are responsible to make the decisions He makes. If you're in a marriage and your spouse tells you to do something that's disobedient to God, you would say no. If you are in a country that says things like, you can't go to church, you would say no. Um, And we see examples of that in Scripture. Uh, When people make decisions, uh, try to make a decision in your life, that is not their decision to make. Uh, We say no. I'll give you some examples of that. Um, In Acts chapter 5, verse 28, the apostles are preaching, and the rulers of that day arrested them and said, do not preach. This is what it says in Acts uh, 5, 28. It says, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So when your kids go to school and the teachers tell them, you are not allowed to talk about God at school, do you say to your kids, you need to be in submission to your teacher? 
Or do you say to your kids, no, you need to be in submission to God? I remember um, when, when Jessica was in elementary school, I think probably, actually she was in kindergarten. And uh, one of the things that Michelle and I would do with our kids is on the way to school, we would pray with them. We would pray that they would have opportunities to share the gospel. We would encourage them to pray for their friends. And so Jessica had gone to school, and she got into a conversation with a little boy, and and she was talking to him about the Lord. And and the teacher told her she was not allowed to to continue that conversation. And so um, we got involved, and we said, no, um, she is going to be able to share the gospel, and we talked about those things when she, was in, um, when she was in fourth or fifth grade. Similar situation. Teacher told her, you are not allowed to talk about God. And we just went, we, we got involved and went to the teacher and just said, yeah, is this a, like, Jessica's not allowed to stand up in the middle of math and start preaching the gospel while the teacher's trying to teach math. That's not okay. But when they're at recess or when they're in other places and everybody's just having conversations, Um, And it's kind of nice because in this country, we actually have the law on our side. Um, She's, and we went and we, we asserted that right and said, no, she is allowed to share the gospel. So as believers, when we think about authority, how are we training people and how do we think about how we respond to authority? I was thinking about the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. You remember in Acts chapter 15 how they had this sharp disagreement and then they went different ways? Uh, the apostle Paul was saying, I, want, I don't want to take Mark on a missionary journey with us because he bailed last time. And you have Barnabas saying, no, we need to bring Mark with us. You know the thing that you don't see happening there? You don't see two people where one person is telling another person what to do. You have both of these men praying and saying, God, what is it that you desire? And what's interesting when you read Acts chapter 15 is that the church blessed them both and sent them both out in different directions. That disagreement was part of God's plan. How about last week? Remember we talked about Apollos and how Paul urged Apollos strongly to go to the Corinthians. And you know what Apollo said? He said, no, Paul, I'm not going. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, Paul, you're my authority, and in my heart, I don't believe that's the right thing for me to do, and, but you know what? If you tell me to go, fine, I'll go. Apollos was thinking about, before God, what is it that you would have me do? And Apollos said no to Paul. And so this whole idea that submitting to authority means that you just offload all your decisions and allow another person to just make all your choices for you, that is not biblical submission. But what I also want you to know is that you shouldn't come away from a passage that says submit to one another with a long list of reasons why you don't submit. Um, The truth is we do follow leadership. And there are often times in my ministry life where if I was deciding how things would go, it would have gone one way, but the person who was actually in charge and who it was, their, it was their position to be able to make these decisions made a decision I wouldn't have made. So you know how I responded? I thought to myself, is it sinful for me to do what I'm being asked to do? No, this is their thing. I shared what I thought, but now I'm going to do what I was asked to do because this person is in authority over me. And, and so we need to be working hard at making sure that we are submitting rightly. So here's a third thing. We need to be people who recognize spiritual faithfulness. Verse 17, I rejoiced at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achis because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. One of the things that's important for us is that we value spiritual qualities and that we exalt and that we recognize spiritually faithful people. Thinking about Psalm 15, when it talks about who can be close to God, this is what it says, O Lord, who will sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So that's the first thing, is just saying, you don't attack and undermine and harm your friends. That's the first thing. 
But then he says this, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We need to be people that honor those who fear the Lord. That's one of the things I used to think about when I was a youth pastor, and I would always go visit kids, and I'd go into their room, and I always, it told me something about them when I looked at their walls to see what kind of posters were up. Who were their heroes? Who did they idolize? Did they idolize people who hated God, or did they idolize faithful people? We are to recognize spiritual faithfulness. Um, here's a, another command. And this is, I think, a super important thing for the church, and I think especially in our attitude toward evangelism. We want this to be a church where people show up and feel welcome and loved and cared about. And one of the things I think about is how often people can show up to church and be offended by silly things. And I always think if anybody comes to Foothills Church and they're offended because they don't like something that God says, I'm good with that. I'm good with saying what God says and somebody saying, no, thank you. I hate that. I want no part of that. That's great. But I don't ever want, I hope that that's not how people respond, but I hope that nobody ever shows up and is offended because they weren't cared for, because they were treated unkindly. I think this is interesting. And this, by the way, is a focus. This point is actually a focus on how believers see other believers. This is what it says. The churches of Asia send you greeting, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. And then he tells them to do something with one another. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So he's telling them to greet one another. Now, does that mean that we should line up in front of the church and all kiss each other on the way in the church? There's a bunch of people would say, man, I ain't going there. And a bunch of husbands are like, I ain't bringing my wife there. I'll line up, have a bunch of people kiss her. So um, I am not saying that we should be kissing people. Uh, this was culturally a way to, to warmly and kindly greet somebody. This is looking people in the eye, being glad that they're there, noticing the way we would apply that is that we're looking for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are encouraging them. We are kind to them. We are purposeful and intentional. You know, often in the church, you can think about, hey, how can I serve in the church? And we go, okay, you could be a Sunday school teacher. You could, you know, help fold, you could help fold paperwork. You could do this. You could do that. Have you ever thought about the fact that you serve the church in a powerful way if you just show up on Sunday morning and you look at people in the eye, and you care for them, and you greet them, and you encourage them. That is something that God wants from every believer toward other believers. You know what I think would be shocking? If you could find a church where people always warmly greeted one another and then ignored the visitors. Like, I don't think that would happen. I think when people are warm and genuinely love and care about people, they're going to greet everyone who walks through the door. So part of the command is that we love and care for each other, that we are warm. And now I told you that there was going to be a controversial statement. And uh, this is the point, and I think that Paul makes here, is that we need to prioritize God in our heart over everything else. Total commitment to Christ. That is something that God wants. And I'm going to share some, some things as we kind of think about what that means that I think will challenge you. They challenge me. Um, Paul says this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, one of the things that we saw in Galatians, uh, this is a reference to Paul's handicap. He couldn't see. In Galatians, he says, you can tell I'm writing this. Look how huge the letters are that I'm writing with. So they could see Paul's handwriting because he wrote in these big, huge letters because he couldn't see. And so he's saying, you recognize that this letter comes from me because I'm writing this. He says, if anyone has no, this is the, this is the statement here. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul curses anyone who doesn't love the Lord. Like, does that strike you? If, if, if you think about a curse, like there's all kinds of words I could use for cursing somebody. But if I just got up here and I just said, I curse anybody who doesn't love Jesus, 
Uh, people would say, what an unloving pastor. I would never want to go to a church where, where they pronounce cursing on people who don't know the Lord. Aren't we supposed to love unbelievers? Aren't we supposed to pursue unbelievers? How could you stand up there and say, I curse anyone who doesn't love Jesus? I mean, is that, is that the attitude that we should have? And what I would say is, this is Paul's attitude, but this is not just Paul's attitude. God had Paul write that. Now, one of the things that we need to think about is, and we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what was Paul's attitude toward his fellow Jews? Anybody remember? Yeah, Paul said something about his fellow Jews that I would never say about any unbeliever. Paul said, I would wish myself accursed for my brethren. Paul actually in Romans says, I would be willing to be separated from God in hell if it meant that the Jewish nation would be saved. So is this an expression of Paul not loving unbelievers? I think about the way Paul lived his life. He suffered. He was beaten. He was put in prison to take the gospel to the lost. So Paul loved unbelievers. But he says here, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul loved the Corinthians. You know what John 14, 15 says about people who love the Lord? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey me. Like I often thought about this. I wonder how the Corinthians took this. Paul writes this letter to them. He's challenging them to obey God. He's telling them all the ways that they're not obeying God. And then he basically says, if you don't obey God, then you are to be cursed. Anybody who doesn't love the Lord, anybody who doesn't love the Lord, let you, let you be accursed. Like That's what Paul says here. So what is the emphasis? How do we put this in context? And I think it basically just means this. Jesus says this about following Him, right? About following Him. He says, I am number one. I need to be more important to you than anyone or anything else. More important than even your own life. And Jesus says, following me means I am number one or you are not worthy of me. So it says this, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, I was thinking about that in relation to my dad. I used to share the gospel with my dad over and over, and I prayed for him, and he was not a believer. And I was really struggling because my dad had heart attacks. He had strokes. He had all kinds of health problems. And I remember thinking, man, he is not going to respond to the Lord. And one of the things I used to think about is, how will I function if my dad dies and doesn't know the Lord? How will I be able to function with that? Um, my dad's brother passed away, did not know the Lord. And I remember um, before he passed away, he brought me a sleeping bag and he gave me a bunch of stuff. He knew that he was dying. And after he passed away, um, I actually had to get rid of everything he gave me. And I had to get rid of it because I could not look at anything he gave me without having intense pain in my chest. When I thought about him and I thought about what the reality of his eternity was. And I remember thinking, how will I function if my dad dies and doesn't know the Lord? And I loved my uncle, but my dad was, I loved him a lot more. And one of the things that I thought about was this verse. I just thought, so why should I, as a person who follows the Lord and trusts the Lord, be upset that my dad, who's heard the gospel over and over and over again, shakes his fist in God's face and pridefully says no? I should say, no, God, your judgment of my dad is righteous. My dad deserves to be separated from you. And if I'm lining up with somebody, I line up with you. I don't line up with my dad. And when Paul says this, it's not because he doesn't love unbelievers. It's because he has an undying, committed love for the Lord that is over any other love toward any other person. And I just think about the intensity. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me. 
if you had a son or daughter that shook their fist in God's face and said no, um, what would your attitude toward that be like? I know people who will not come to Christ, and part of the reason they won't come to Christ is because putting their faith in Christ and believing the gospel will mean that their parents are separated from God. If this is true, I know my family members were not saved, I can't accept this. But God says, I come first. And this is just Paul saying that his loyalty is with Christ over anyone else. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love unbelievers. And I think when you think about this, I think that that um, impacts our relationships, the way we view people, the way we do ministry. Because often people use the concept of loving others and being a good testimony as an excuse to prioritize the approval of men over the approval of God. And people say, oh, um, this person's trapped in this sin. I, I would never want to tell them that they should repent of their sin. That would make them mad, and that would be a bad testimony. You know, I don't think that compromising is being a good testimony. I don't think making sure that you never offend anybody is being a good testimony. I think a good testimony is living a life that says, God, I value you over everything else and over everyone else. And when a person looks at you, I think like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they didn't say, I don't want to be a bad testimony to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to be a bad testimony to other people. They just said, no, my loyalty is with God, and I don't care what that costs me. And I think that is being a good testimony. And Paul ends by just saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And then he tells them all that he loves them. As I think about these things, it's powerful. There was a lot in those last verses. And I'm so thankful for all that we have learned in Corinthians. I think it's just so important as we look at this that we discipline ourselves to put these things into our life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. And I just thank you that we have such a good example in the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we know that he was not a perfect man. Jesus was the only perfect man. And yet we know that when he wrote, you guided every word that he wrote. Every one of his words is actually your words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to read, to study, to learn from these things, and to live our lives in light of what you've said in your name. Amen.